welcome to Can I Butt In, the Bowel Research UK podcast, where we welcome bowel cancer and bowel disease patients, researchers, healthcare professionals and carers to butt in and share their experiences. We're picking a topic every episode and getting to the bottom of it. I'm your host, Sam Alexandra-Rose. I'm the Patient and Public Involvement Manager at Bowel Research UK. And as a patient myself, I'm excited to bring more patient and researcher voices into the spotlight. Hi everybody, today I'm joined by Pete Wheatstone to discuss all things bowel cancer and self-employment. We've spoken on the podcast before about dealing with a cancer diagnosis in the workplace, but what are the implications, especially the financial implications, when you're self-employed? So Pete is someone who has experience of this, and Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Sam. So do you want to start off just by telling me uh, a little bit about yourself so you're uh, you were self-employed can you tell us uh, about your your business and what you did for for work at the time of your diagnosis yeah uh, my business was in the field of information technology i was known as what's called a, an it consultant really um essentially um self-employed and i was working with the large uk banks and insurance companies and it meant going from project to project hard work you're often working flat out for 50 to 60 hours a week um generally one customer at a time and it but it was very well paid so i guess in some ways you could call it a micro business because there was only myself and my sole employee was my wife who helped me with the bookkeeping okay and then what happened at the time of your bowel cancer diagnosis then that must have quite frankly, throwing everything into a bit of chaos. Can you tell us about uh, the the diagnosis and the the treatment that came along and what what all of that was like for you? Yeah, well, all was well for the first seven years in business. Uh, But then I started to notice that I was becoming increasingly fatigued, waking up in the morning, still feeling very tired. And looking back, I now realise that my poo was gradually becoming darker. But at the time, I thought nothing of it. Um, I had no pain, but I had plenty of other things to worry about, including running the business, helping support a next-door neighbour, sorry, their next-door neighbour. Her husband had uh, died recently. And also my wife's parents, both in their 80s, and they were increasingly unwell and needing support. And unfortunately, they lived 100 miles away. So at the time, I just felt I needed a break from work. And with Christmas coming on, as it was in 2014, that's broadly what I had planned for myself. But unfortunately, over the Christmas and New Year, whilst we were visiting friends, I did have stomach pains and generally started to feel quite unwell. So I ended up in the local A&E, where the local doctor diagnosed diverticulitis um, and prescribed some antibiotics and sent me on my way. And that's I understand a fairly common starting point for a lot of people with bowel cancer. And always fine through January, no more stomach pains, but I had started to wake up in the middle of the night feeling wet and cold. And I really couldn't work out what was going on. And then I realised after three or four occasions like this that I'd been sweating profusely whilst asleep. My pyjamas were becoming soaked and it would when the the sweat got cold, I woke up, and I now know that these are called night sweats. But at, at the same time, I was equally convinced that this was the side effects of a new pill that my uh, GP had described for me. So I arranged to go along and see him. 
And um, he started to ask me some very specific and unusual questions. Um, and he was interested in my visit to the A&E at Christmas. He wanted to know how long I'd been extremely tired for, which was probably six to nine months. But I've got all the excuses. I've been extremely busy. And whether I'd lost any weight recently without going on a diet. And yes, I'd lost almost two, th two stones. But that was a good thing, wasn't it? And I had my bowel habit changed in the last year. Well, now you mention it, it had. Um, did I have any bleeding from my bottom or blood in my poo? And I was a bit relieved to be able to say no. As it turned out, in hindsight, I gave an incorrect answer. But luckily for me, the GP, who was only 12 months uh, from retirement, immediately started suggesting that this might be a 1 in 10 chance of being bowel cancer and not diverticulitis. But I, of course, clung on to the 9 out of 10 bit in that bit because I was pretty sure there's nothing serious wrong with me. Anyway, he said he was putting me down something called a two-week wait uh, referral with the hospital and I then had a, a colonoscopy or as I later found out a sigmoidoscopy and that's basically a, like a short form of an endoscopy which in just, just investigates the back passage from uh, my anus up to the first bend of the bowel which is called the sigmoid and apparently that's where most polyps and bowel cancers start. That didn't show anything abnormal so I was then sent for a CT colonography, uh, which inspects the whole of the large bowel and rectum. And I left there and heard nothing for three weeks and assumed nothing abnormal was found. And then I got a call from the hospital saying, could I attend appointment in a couple of days time? And it was then that I found out that um, a tumour had been found and it had all the characteristics of a cancerous tumour. Um, it was very close to my spleen and possibly growing into it. Um, I didn't really understand the implication of that at the time, and now do. Um, and I, in fact, I had to ask what the spleen was. And I was told it's basically a small organ that filters your blood and controls the white and red blood cells in the body. In other words, it's part of your immune system that protects you from infection. I guess most cancer patients can relate that when you diagnosed with cancer it comes as for most a complete shock and to be honest I was still expecting the confirmation of diverticulitis and that I was in that nine out of ten group mentioned by my GP. Well that's quite a lot of things to already have happened even before you get to that stage of diagnosis isn't it I mean the uh, sort of feeling ill and having the the symptoms and and going to A and E and having the diverticulitis diagnosis and then finding out that that might not be the right thing. It sounds like perhaps being self employed and running running your own business. I mean, you can put symptoms down to you know feeling stressed, feeling tired, that kind of thing because of of your your job. Do you think that like being self employed and running your business kind of impacts? like everything that you've spoken about so so far on its own, never mind having the, the cancer diagnosis. I, I think you're right, Sam. I think it's very much of um, you're really focused on your business. And I've um, always been one, you know, there's a, a saying that people either work to live or live to work. I was in that latter category, I think. Um, so my, I wouldn't say my sole attention, but a lot of my attention was on uh, the business, making sure that was running properly, and also the peripheral stuff about my wife's parents who were elderly 
and feeling ill, which was a concern. And there were other things going on in the family as well, which I won't go into. Um, but yes, it was a heck of a shock. And I really wasn't expecting it. And then when they ask you, do you have any questions? Well, your brain freezes. Yeah. As I'm sure lots of people have told you. And they could only think of the most basic ones, which was, am I going to die? They said, we'll offer you treatment for this. Uh, will my treatment be successful? Which I guess is another way of saying, am I going to die? They certainly hope so that the treatment will be successful, but they need to do a lot more tests. So I noticed the lack of a clear yes and no to my questions, which uh, perhaps didn't help and added to my upset. But I did tell them I wanted to know the bare truth. Um, so I've only got myself to blame. So, yes, yeah, so it was about two months later that I had an operation which was called an extended right helicolectomy and a splenectomy. And that means that about a third of my large bowel was removed and the spleen was removed as well. And that was involving uh, open surgery because they couldn't do a keyhole one because of the location of the tumour. I was in hospital for about 11 days because there were some post-operative complications, following which I was discharged from hospital. Um, and I had one little trip back there when um, there was a complication with the incision not healing properly. And you had your spleen removed as well. Has How has that affected your immune system has that been difficult through covid and, and that that kind of thing and having to take extra precautions well not as bad as i'd expected i was i was told to be fair that some of the other organs in one's body can take over some of the functions of the spleen okay. and i have to take four um, penicillin tablets every day and for the rest of my life right um and i was constantly on or off um the, the list of people who had to take extra precautions so I consoled myself that it was actually, it must have been relatively low risk rather than high risk um, during COVID, but yes. And of course, when I said to the surgeon, if there's any doubt, just whip the spleen out, um, I didn't anticipate a pandemic coming along. Yeah, I, I can relate to that being on and off the uh, the the list because I we were about seven weeks into the pandemic before I I got a letter to say, you're clinically extremely vulnerable. Do, and I've been just like going to Tesco's, like, <laughs> you know. Um, and then I, I got offered a couple of, I think I got offered my my first three COVID jabs and I haven't had any letters since then. So I don't know if they've just decided that I'm not vulnerable anymore. I, I, it's, I don't know. It's oh, I'm in a very similar <laughs> position to you. Yeah, I think yeah. they've lost interest. <laughs> yeah. So um, a couple of months after I recovered from surgery, I then had an appointment with an oncologist. And that was at those days, it wouldn't be now, but it was, um, uh, I was, was prescribed six months of chemo. But of course, that meant having chemo side effects, which then meant I was readmitted to hospital on a couple of occasions, once in, because of a blood clot on my lung. Um, I thought I'd managed to pull a muscle in my chest somehow, but it was painful while I was breathing. And they said, no, it's a pulmonary embolism. All right, God. So, you know, when we look at it from the point of diagnosis to the point where I started to feel well again after chemotherapy, we're really talking about 18 months duration. And of course, um, that has an effect on your business. So you're not working for that that whole 18 months? Uh, no, no, I couldn't. Um, I was particularly unwell during chemo, which surprised me. Uh, I was told some people can actually go to work, carry on. Mm -hmm. Um 
I could barely get off the settee. Um, but there we go. I mean, we're all, we all know that we're all different. We all react differently to the same drug. So um, unfortunately, in that particular case, um, my body didn't um, do me very well. But there we go. Um, in long-term effects, um, I guess there's two things. I had a number of hernias, a couple of which have been repaired, and a heart defect resulting from the uh, pulmonary embolism. I'll not bore you with the details of that, but that is a long-term effect that I um, get along with. Uh, what did it mean after those 18 months? Were you able to return to work or did you not return to work since then? Uh, no, I think um, at the point of being told that I needed a major operation, I had to make a decision about the business. It was my sole source, sole source of income. And it was trying to work out whether I continue to run it or should I sort of shut it down. And it was pretty obvious from what the doctors did tell me, and I wasn't aware or couldn't take on board all of the information that I was given at that time, that this was going to be three, four, five months of work at minimum. And um, I was the sort of work I do, um, you're bought in because there's a problem on a software implementation or a data migration project where they can't staff it from their own employees. So effectively, you, you're bought in from outside. And it's one of those things, as soon as they're up to date, they say goodbye to you. But in the meantime, you're well paid. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it struck me it wasn't fair to myself. And it probably wasn't fair to the customer to go off uh, for three to five months without a, a definite end date. So I thought, right, it's time to pack up that and wind up the business. And how have you been doing since then? Are you okay now? What's what's the status at the moment? Well, apart from those long-term effects, if we're talking about the cancer here, then I've still got hernias, uh, take tablets for a hiatus hernia. And, um, of course, the penicillin tablets uh, for the time today. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much it um, from the cancer viewpoint. And obviously now I keep a fairly close eye on the symptoms, which I was not aware of before. So I've yeah. learned something from it. Uh, in terms of my business, I mean, that meant there was a lot to do before the operation. So... That involved really, first of all, telling the customer I was working for, which was a high street bank at the time, talking to the project director. And I said, OK, I'll work another couple of weeks and hand over what I'm working on. And also explain to uh, the people in the fresh departments that I work with uh, what was happening and why they felt that was only fair to them. Uh, luckily, on this project, there were not that many people, probably only 10 but if you imagine a self-employed person with regular customers, uh, let's say a mobile hairdresser, they might have 30, 40 customers that have contact um, to say, I'm sorry, I'm closing down the business. Amongst the many other things that you have to do. I guess as part of the decision is also the financial impact as well. Because closing my business would mean that there'd be no further income. Um, my wife had no longer had her job because she was now spending all of her time at her parents' house looking after them because they were increasingly ill. And um, so we realised that, okay, we've got no income either of us, so we're going to have to use our savings and working capital from the business to try and get us through. But it was pretty obvious uh, early on that really that wasn't going to be sufficient 
you know, with typical outgoings like everybody else has, whether they're healthy or ill, there's the council tax, the gas and electricity costs, and one does need to keep warm during cancer treatment, food and motoring costs, and all the usual stuff that everybody else faces. And whilst it's possible to cut down a little bit on outgoings, it was simply not practical, I think, to move house during treatment to cut the costs down further. And moving house was a bit of a non-starter because that would take a lot of time. And I don't think either of us was up to the stress of packing and unpacking and all the things that go with the house move. And then, of course, before the operation, there was a myriad of tests and consultations to attend. There seemed to many of these, as I'm sure your listeners can relate to. Most days, there was a letter or two from the hospital. And if I didn't receive a letter from the hospital after a few days, I started to worry that they'd overlooked me. Mm-hmm. So um, it's one of those weird things I'm sure you can relate to. Absolutely. Uh, you don't want the letters, but you do want the letters for the security. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's a horrible thing to have to chase something that you don't want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but let's say that was the medical side. I then needed to close down the business having made the decision. So what did I need to do? Well, I've got to first of all, make sure I receive all the income from work carried out. I've got to pay all my suppliers. I've got to sort out the company bank accounts. I've got to prepare draft accounts for my accountant. I've got to do make a final VAT return. And I've got also got to make an income tax return and then formally close the business. So there's a lot of work to do there. But unfortunately, in addition to that, because we were looking to move our ill in-laws much nearer to us, um, I was also selling their property, buying one for them, uh, as well as sorting out the probate for my mother-in-law, who unfortunately in the middle died. So there's a lot of things going on in addition to the usual domestic administrative chores. You're not kidding. And then, of course, you've got to think about getting your affairs in order just in case the worst was to happen. So in some ways, it was sort of confirmation it was the right thing to do to close the business down. And on a plus side, it certainly took my mind off thinking about cancer for a few hours every day. I guess that's the thing. If you have two things to stress about, at least you can distract yourself from one of them by focusing on the other in a weird, weird way. Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm glad I had that... um, workload to be honest probably would have suited everybody but for me it did do but again when I looked around um, there was very little specific guidance for the self-employed from the medical charities or the NHS or other local support organizations but again I felt lucky because the knowledge I gained from my career had been in financial services for 20 years that helped guide me through to some degree but I still made some financial mistakes but then I really wonder how other self-employed people, such as builders, plumbers, and all the hundreds of other self-employed trades will cope without the financial knowledge that I had. So I was very lucky. So what was the financial impact for you then for for having to shut down the business and generally for being self-employed with, with cancer? I mean, you don't have the benefits that employees have, so you don't have sick pain you're losing out on work opportunities and and all that sort of stuff yeah um um, i'm not losing out on opportunities i guess you could say because i wasn't in a fit state to take advantage of any of those opportunities yeah but um it was about what what 
what can I do for income? Um, and now there's a, a benefit that's payable to the self-employed and others called Employment Support Allowance, or ESA for short. And it's now something that's rolled up into universal credit, I understand. And qualifying for it was fairly easy. You just had to have worked for the last two years, I think. And um, an assessment, which in my case wasn't necessary, as one of the exemptions from the assessment is whether you're waiting for having or recovering from chemotherapy or radiotherapy. Um, but it still took about 13 weeks to come through when we were just living off our savings. That's a long time. Well, it, well, we're looking, we, we got savings, but, you know, not everybody's fortunate to have that. Yeah. Um, but when you get the payments, they're not great. You do a 13-week period at £84.80 a week there. That's the current rate. And after 13 weeks, it increases to £128.85. So that would barely buy you food these days for two people for a month. But anyway, there you go. That's that's the situation, and I guess we're glad of it. Um, there's another thing called personal independence payment, which is another potential benefit. But I understand that's related to being a benefit because you've got reduced physical abilities, such as activities of daily living or mobility problems and probably helps pay for carers and stuff. I, di I didn't need that, to be fair, because I got my wife to look after me. So um, uh, it wasn't quite so bad. So, yeah, so so that's what I did. And then um, my mistake was thinking, well, I'm 56 now. Um, I could take my pension early. Um, which I decided to do. And that really helped plug the hole in the finances. Um, but of course, not everybody's in that situation. No. Um, so that that was um, fairly useful for me, I guess. So yeah, so, so really now I um, live off the pensions that I've got. And um, we, we, we get along like that. I decided not to return to work. I didn't want to work 40 to 60 hours a week again, possibly working away from home. Um, I thought, no, it's time to retire. Maybe somebody's telling you something, Peter. Yeah, it's it's interesting thinking about how you know people are going to be affected differently. As you say, some people may be able to take early retirement and some people won't be able to. And then there's there's other people as, as well, kind of beyond the self-employed, who may also be affected you know, like, for example, people who are on zero hour contracts or if you haven't been at a job very long, you know, maybe if you just started a job and you're un unlucky enough to suddenly have a, a cancer diagnosis and then you're not eligible for sick pay. Um, yeah, it yeah. impacts a lot of people, couldn't it? Well, also, if you're working for a very small company, I mean, they, they can't afford to pay uh, employee benefits beyond statutory sick pay. Um, so it, it does impact that. And you know, just for the self-employed, um, looking at the statistics from the Office of National Statistics just this year, the number of self-employed people in the UK is four and a quarter million. So that's one in seven of the working population. So, you know, it, it is a significant problem. And that's not accounting for the people you've just mentioned, either on zero-hour contracts or uh, working for very uh, small companies. And I think if you include them, that almost comes up to one in three of the working population. Wow. So it's not an insignificant problem. No. And as you said before, uh, these people may have lots and lots of customers. You mentioned like mobile hairdressers may have 30 or 40 like customers that they need to 
say, oh, I'm not going to be working for a while or I'm sort of shutting down completely. What was it like for you having the conversation? I mean, you said you only have one customer at a time, but what was it like having to have the conversations with customers and perhaps other people? Well, uh, to be honest, um, it wasn't easy, um, but it was harder with the people. As a self-employed contractor, an IT contractor, you get to know certain people that tend to turn up again on the same old contracts that you're on. So you get to know them. And I found it harder talking with those guys than somebody who I didn't know quite as well at the company I was working for. So, yeah. And, and of course, then you feel you, you're leaving the team. You're no longer a member of the club. Yeah. And as I say about cancer, you're now a member of the club you never wanted to join. Yeah, that's um, it. But it is that sense of loss about you've left the project, you've left the team. Obviously, you're going to miss the income. But it's also about you've no longer got your business. And business is, a, for me, was a part of my identity because I poured so much effort and time into it. Yeah, it's different, isn't it? When you're self-employed and you've got your own business, perhaps might be different to somebody who's just an, an employee. Well, yeah, yeah, you, you tend to get a little bit more support, but I guess there'll be similar feelings in some way, particularly the social side of work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the, the difference as, as well. When you're an employee, you might have that support from HR, from, from managers, and, yeah, it's that sort of social circle and, yeah, support at work as well, isn't it? Yeah, certainly for large companies, you'd, you'd, you'd get support from HR and stuff, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then there's... I guess there's a uh, disruption to work as well. She mentioned sort of attending appointments. So even again, before you have that cancer diagnosis, it's having to go to outpatient appointments. If you have to have colonoscopies or MRIs or CTs or, or whatever it is and, and dealing with, with all of that. And it's not just making time for it, but it's if you're self-employed, then that's time that you're spending at appointments and time that you're not spending, you know, making money for for yourself and, and of course, you're not feeling well during any of this, so your yeah. energy is not as great. And uh, customers want you at your best, not doing a sloppy job. Right. Um, so um, it is difficult uh, for everybody concerned, I suppose. And then, of course, you've got the personal feelings that you know. I guess most cancer patients have this of why me, why now? I mean, there's never a good time to be diagnosed with cancer, but you know. Um, that loss of routine of work, just getting up in the morning at set time and off to work you go. So you've now got an unstructured week. And then there's the feelings of letting down the family by giving them or burdening them with additional worries and, and not bringing home the bacon any income. Um, I guess as a bloke, you might feel that more. I don't know these days. You probably said that's equally felt by ladies and gents. Um, and then, of course, you've got the what might the immediate future holding store for you. Yeah. Um, and I was lucky I didn't have a mortgage. You think about factoring mortgage costs into this, then, you know, you've also got your home potentially at risk as well. Yeah. Especially uh, now with inflation and everything, everything's more expensive, everything's more difficult. Yeah. 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 And of course, but that, that, that applies to all. And of course, you know, yeah. here, I guess, we're talking not only that segment of the working population, but it's not just cancer, it's all sorts of bowel diseases. And you'll yeah, know better true. than me that, uh, you know, if you can't work, then it has real implications, uh, particularly if it's a significant illness, which is going to affect your livelihood. Yeah. Yeah. And especially with bowel related diseases and 
practical things about having to be close to the toilet or the symptoms like stomach pains and, and yeah all all sorts of things yeah it can be very disruptive yeah and, it, and it's bound to um, affect your career prospects as well isn't it uh, if you can't be a regular attender at work and or you can't make that meeting or it's too far away for you to travel etc but i guess you know i'm not here to moan about the level of benefits or my luck as one might call it um i've been lucky in a way i was lucky that the gp spotted um my cancer i was lucky that the surgeon spotted a further tumor when he undertaken the surgery which actually was starting to spread to the rest of it um uh, of my body so so that was um, lucky and i've been lucky in terms of being able to take advantage of the pensions at my age so um you know i i don't consider myself to be unlucky in that respect i just wish there was some more guidance for um the self-employed to to help you think through these steps which does take a say a lot of thinking about at a time when you're still reeling from a cancer diagnosis and probably not feel physically feeling well as well. So, you know, that's probably what I'm here today for. That's my driver in appearing today. Is, so what can we do uh, constructively to help people? And as I say, the guidance has improved in the time when I was diagnosed back in 2014, but it's still too far generic, in my opinion, to be really useful. So looking around recently, um, a first suggestion is often made about you need to make a decision about your business. Are you going to continue it or are you going to wind it up? But how do you make a decision about your business if you don't understand or can't get information about or understand the impact that cancer or any other illness, serious illness is going to have or the treatment or its side effects for that, not only the individual, but for the business? And I think that's where some guidance will be helpful. So so what guidance could that be? I've been thinking about that. And um, you'd think there'd be some statistics that could help us here to say, right, let's say it was me. Pete, you've got stage three cancer. Typically, your, your treatment journey is going to look like this in timelines. And it may be because of the particular drug you're going to have on that um, you may need to think about being a roofer. Maybe that will no longer be appropriate for you. So having some guidance which helps people understand the impact on their business, I mean, it's for them to ultimately decide, of course, what they do. But some guidance about how long the treatment's going to be, what the path is going to be like, will really be helpful. And it's not just about how long will you be in hospital for, it's really about how long will you be uh, will it be before you can return to your usual work? That's the information people really want. And yes, we're all different. It's going to vary by age. It's going to vary by disease, uh, etc. It's also going to vary by the job you do. But it shouldn't be on beyond the wit of man these days to get some statistics that could give some broad indications to help people. Yeah. And this could also be factored into shared decision making as well. If there are multiple treatment options, then factoring Absolutely. in the person's business what do they do how long will this treatment leave you out of work how long will this treatment leave you out of work and yeah factoring in those individual uh, things to to consider yeah no you're absolutely right sam i've got a um my plumber i've had for 15 years and my electrician i've also had for a similar time both have become ill in the last 10 years and they tell me the first question they want to ask is 
how will this affect me and how, when will I be able to return to work? That's a big factor in their decision-making about treatment. You're so right. Um, so I'd like to think some researchers could find it. And this won't be in one database. You'll probably have to go to the Department of Social Health and Social Care and a hospital to, to, to get these statistics. But some guidance will be helpful compared with just asking, you need to make some decisions about your business. How do I make decisions in the absence of that information? Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that I think we could do. Or also uh, researchers were running clinical trials. Um, they collect information through quality of life questionnaires, but the questionnaires really go beyond the questions relating to treatment side effects or use for NHS health economics. So why don't we extend that to include information that self-employed patients feel is important and a priority for them? So that could include when did you return to work, uh, looking back. Um, so that would be helpful. Um, and if you think about hospitals, if you were, if they were able to provide a gen generic and general list of tests, you could gain from that roughly how long you need to take off work to attend the test, which again would be a useful input. But I'm not sure that's available. And I know it's going to be complicated and some things, the results of some tests will mean you have to have further tests. But, you know, I guess we start about talking about starting here, not coming up with a final end product. But I think that would be helpful. For health ec economists, their focus seems to be mainly on the impact of new and existing treatment costs to the NHS. But if you're not looking at the impact of the self-employed, those working in small businesses are on zero hours contract, let alone the loss to the Treasury in terms of income tax and taxes on spending, or the societal impact, then are we truly understanding the economic cost of cancer or any other serious illness? I don't think we are. So, you know, I know life is messy and therefore the data is messy, but we have to make a start somewhere. And then finally, I guess, Sam, I've got to say medical charities such as Bow Research UK. I feel you've got a role to play in helping set expectations with government and hospitals and researchers. Because as I say, it's not a problem just restricted to cancer patients. It's any bowel disease or indeed any illness um, where it has significant impact. And I think you can bring your influence to bear on researcher funding, on policy, and through your network of patients that help you. Yeah. Really, really well said. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, more more research needed and a clearer picture of, of the impact on, on everybody, more statistics, and then perhaps also more opportunities for people to talk to other patients, perhaps, and see, you know, what have what has your experience been like in this treatment? What can I expect? And, and yeah, sort of generating all of these conversations. Yeah. And it's, as I said, I made mistakes. So, you know, it's always, what did you overlook when you went through this? Oh, right, I would have never thought of that. Thanks for that. I'll make a point of making sure I cover that off in my preparations. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, more more resources, yeah, for this specific issue of being self-employed and, and being ill, whether that's cancer or, or anything else. And, yeah, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I, I don't think we're looking for perfect solutions here. I think make more progress than we're making in support and guidance. Yeah, it's all really good food for thought. I just wanted to sort of finish off by mentioning your involvement in patient and public involvement. 
because we run into each other fairly regularly i i feel in yeah. uh, in in our circles um and so for anybody who is listening who hasn't heard of uh, patient and public involvement or ppi before i'm the patient and public involvement manager for bowel research uk and it's my job to get people involved in research that may be um, setting priorities and telling researchers what's important to patients, what should they be researching. It may be sitting in focus groups, uh, providing opinions on a solution or a product or doing surveys or uh, being a co-applicant on a research project. There's all sorts of ways that people can can get involved uh, as researchers rather than being researched on is is kind of the the headline for it and pete you've done quite a lot in this arena haven't you so i was just uh, interested to hear how you got into ppi and what it's been like for you yeah um absolutely um and i'm part of your part which is patient and researchers uh, together uh team which is really great to be part of to be be completely honest um as soon as i started feeling well I got bored. I'd no longer want my business. So what am I going to do? I need to occupy my brain. And one day I spotted, I can't remember where, um, there was an event that was being run in Leeds, which is the nearest city to me, um, being run by Cancer Research and uh, Macmillan Cancer Support. So my plan was I'll go along. They're going to pay me travel costs. So I'll attend the morning meeting and then I'll do a bit of shopping and off home I go. And it's fair to say, that I understood very little of what was being discussed at that first meeting, as it involved all sorts of healthcare professionals and academics and a sprinkling of patients. Um, But you get talking to patients, and that's always useful. But I think with starting out in PPI, it can be very daunting initially, um, and it's about working your way in, and um, it's easy to start with almost talking about what happened to you, but keeping to the topic that's being discussed because you, you're, you're a master of your own experience, aren't you? And um, so I attended another meeting about a month later where I did understand more what was being, being said, because it was more about IT. And I was able to make some contributions. And again, I made some useful contacts at that meeting, which led me being invited to join another patient and public uh, involvement group. And it's really expanded since then. Um, I chair four patient groups, and I work with researchers on... I don't know, I haven't counted them. There's probably 30 to 35 different research projects, mainly in the UK, little bits in Europe. And, of course, your own part group at Bow Research UK. And um, I guess the beauty is it keeps me interested. Um, and I tend to work on clinical trials, cancer ones. I tend to work on healthcare data because of my IT background. And somehow I seem to have got into surgery. Um, not literally, but uh, just in surgery research. And I started off, I guess, by simply contributing certain aspects of my cancer experience, depending on that aspect being researched, um, and and putting forward, I guess, the the patient perspective. It all sounds very great as an academic, um, but we're we're the guys that the treatment's being done to, and that gives you a different perspective from the one either wielding the knife or handing out the tablets. So I think that is useful. But but what I've, you then sort of develop, and um, the core of what I still do is about helping researchers take into account patient priorities 
making sure that we protect their interests and particularly making sure that we improve communication with patients about research because it's the only way that treatment's really going to get improved, smarter kind of treatments for future patients. And I find it really satisfying and, um, I don't know, I find it very difficult to say no these days um, when people come, would you be interested in doing this or that or the other? Like, really hard to say no. But the beauty of PPI is that everyone can do as much or as little as they want to suit their personal circumstances, knowing all the time that you're probably helping future patients. Well said. Oh, yeah, brilliant. Thank you for that. Um, if, if that doesn't motivate people to uh, to get involved, I, I don't know what will. <laughs> I think the, the, the key thing is, and I remember this very early days, that I got asked to get involved in a major international piece of research. Um, and I suddenly thought, what have you got yourself into here, Peter? And it's just having somebody to help your hand and show you the ropes. And then it really is relatively easy. But, you know, don't be put off, I would say, would be my message by feeling, well, this all sounds a bit beyond me. Um, there are people there that can help you through it. And um, I say you can do as much or as little of it as you want. Yeah. And we often call patients uh, experts by experience or by, by lived experience because, you know, people are experts in, in what they've they've gone through and in, in their health. So, and as you say, yeah, we're the, the people who are, benefiting from the the research so people should absolutely have their say in what is going to um, happen to them basically in the in the yeah. hospitals and yeah absolutely and it's you know it's not it, it, one doesn't like to criticize but sometimes there are things that happen under treatment you think surely there's a better way of doing it than this or um i, I mean i recently had was back in hospital on some unrelated uh, problem but, you know, the same old, same old problems were there of, again, basically coming down to lack of uh, communication. And I know at the moment the NHS is stretched and stretched, but, you know, sometimes it's the simple things that uh, help put things right. And these are the sort of things you can contribute within the research. Um, it's not all about highfalutin chemicals or uh, snazzy new devices sometimes it's that real world practical stuff that we especially can contribute yeah communication is definitely a huge thing i think top of my list communication and bowel prep that doesn't taste terrible oh yes and i like tart citron but i cannot stand that bowel prep so just to finish off then and you've given us some some great thoughts so far can you leave us with, with just one takeaway that you would like people uh, listening to to go away with regarding self-employment and cancer i think it's about really starting to understand patient priorities and helping people um to guide themselves through the process of i need to either temporarily or partially suspend my business um that for me is the, the key thing and i get that it's difficult for them because if you're an academic or you work in a hospital generally you've ever, only ever known working in the public sector so how would how can you be expecting to uh, uh, understand what up to one in three of the working population go through so i think again that's another role for ppi to to help 
people and try to, I don't like the term educate, but make them aware of life's not necessarily quite as simple for these people as you might imagine. I mean, for their lives, there are going to be other difficulties, but for the self-employed and those that we've talked about on zero hours contract, etc., there are real bits of information they need to make some sensible decisions about their treatment. And you said that very nicely earlier, Sam. Thank you, Pete. Um, it's been really great talking to you about this. And yeah, I hope that we've drawn a lot of people's attention to a really important topic. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Sam. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to Can I Button? This podcast was brought to you by Bow Research UK. Find out more about the charity, our work and how you can get involved. Visit bowelresearchuk.org where you can join our People and Research Together network or part. Read about our research campaigns and fundraising or make a donation to support the vital work we do. Let's end bowel cancer and bowel disease.